please, to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, uh, and chapter 5. I want to read verses 12 through 28. 1 Thessalonians, please, in chapter 5. Hear the word of God. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, it's been a while since we've been in First Thessalonians. It's been since the Sunday before the first Sunday in Advent. For the rest of you, it was November 24th. Uh, but for me, it was the Sunday before the first Sunday of Advent. That's how I think of things. So it's been since... Since then, you might remember as we entered this some months ago, this particular letter that 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 Paul was speaking, writing to this church in Thessalonica. And what we found there was that the gospel came to them in such a way that it created the church there. And in creating the church there, then this very gospel sounded forth or echoed from them. Uh, chapter 1, for instance, Paul writes, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he, that is God, has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full effect or full conviction. The gospel came and they came to faith. They believed it. And, and it was then that the church was created. And this full effect that it had, he writes this in verse 9, that you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So they received the gospel. The church was created at that point. But then, as should always be the case, from the church, the gospel echoes. The gospel sounds forth. Notice how he puts it in verse 6. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, that is echoed from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. And so you get the sense, think about church, think about us. The gospel comes, it creates church, then out of church should sound forth, should echo the truth of this gospel. It comes as we declare it, it comes as we live out all its implications. Last Sunday, Rick gave us a 
great helpful phrase from Leslie Newbegin uh, when he said that the church is the hermeneutic of the gospel. It, it explains, it lays out how we're to understand the gospel as we declare it, as we live out its implications. People come amongst us. They should be able to discern, to understand the gospel. As we declare it, as we live out its implications. So Paul then writes to them in the context of their declaring and living out the implications of the gospel. And he has a couple of primary but related concerns. So these are primary and related concerns for us as a church as well. He's concerned about their perseverance and he's concerned about their sanctification. Right? Related in that you persevere in the context of being sanctified, if you will. Continue on in the faith as we grow in holiness. And, and so Paul writes to them, for instance, in chapter 2 and verse um, verse 11 and 12, he says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. That is, he says, here's how you're to live now. You're to live worthy or consistent with the value of, consistent with the knowledge of God. Because he's the one who calls you into his glorious kingdom. It's a glorious kingdom. It's a great kingdom. There's nothing better than to live under the rule of God. And so you're to live like that. Okay? That's growing in sanctification and persevering in the faith. God's worthy of our lifelong loyalty and love. Perseverance. Of our lifelong loyalty and faith. Perseverance but also of our lifelong loyalty and obedience. Our lifelong, loyal, joyful obedience. Sanctification. Being made and living holy lives. He's concerned about both of these because... There's great opposition in Thessalonica against them. And, and Paul himself has experienced opposition. And so he's afraid, Paul is, that they'll see that Paul's being persecuted and they'll fall from the faith. And they'll face the opposition and it'll be so strong against them that they'll fall from the faith. And so Paul wants to continue to encourage them. So chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we're willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. When he says moved by these afflictions, he says not to be moved to sadness, they would have been, but to be moved away from the truth of Christ, from believing that which is true of Christ. Be moved away from the faith, if you will. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you 
then our labor would be in vain. And so, so he says, I, I, I'm concerned about your perseverance. I'm concerned about your sanctification. I sent Timothy. And then finally he says, oh, and then Timothy just got back and said, you're fine. And so I'm thrilled about that. But then he says, I have this prayer for you. And it's a prayer for their persevering in the faith. And it's a prayer uh, for their growing in holiness. Notice how he puts it in chapter uh, 3 and verse 11. It says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our, our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So he's saying, I, I want you to Continue to persevere and want God to establish your hearts in holiness. And then he says, first, chapter 4, Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing, that you do it more and more. Keep doing this. Keep growing in this holiness, this pleasing of this pleasing of the Lord. And then he goes on to tell them how to love one another. And then he goes on to tell them that all this happens in the context of the church. That there are leaders that God has given. Follow, be at peace with them. There are brothers and sisters in the context of the life of the church with all kinds of difficulties and needs. And there will stretch relationships perhaps, but, but love them, be at peace with them. And then be at peace with God. Be joyful. Be thankful. Listen to the word that comes to you from him. Obey him. Abstain from every form of evil. And then we come to this, well, it's really a benedictory prayer. I love that expression. I didn't make it up. I found it somewhere. But I like these little hyphenated expressions, right? A benedictory prayer. And the reason it's put like that is because it's a little bit of both, it seems. But benedictions and prayers aren't the same thing. You know that, Presbyterians. You know that. Benediction is a word from God to us. It's a, the blessing of God upon us. It comes from God to us. A prayer is our desires, God's word. So it goes from us to him. And this is kind of both. This expresses Paul's prayer for them. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body become blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that echoes everything. He's been praying for them, desiring for them, exhorting them in, uh, throughout this whole letter that he's writing to them. It, it deals with their persever perseverance being kept blameless. It, it deals with their sanctification being sanctified, uh, their holiness. It deals with that, you see his prayer for them. But when he says, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Oh, that's the blessing of God. That's the benediction. That's the guarantee. That's what turns this whole thing on its ear. It's not just simply Paul's prayer, if you will, Paul's desire, but, but it's, it's, it's Paul saying, this is what I desire, and God will do this. This is his promise. This is his guarantee. The one who calls you will sanctify you completely in such a way that your whole spirit and soul and body will be kept blameless 
at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ah, that's for today. Now, oh, this, he begins with this sense of the God of peace. He says, it's consistent with God, the God of peace, that he will sanctify you. He could have said, the God of creation, the God of power, the God of Love, God of grace. He could have said, God of what? All kinds of things. But he's the God of peace. What does he mean by that? Well, God is the one who is peace. God is the one who makes peace. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is reconciliation with Him. Right? End of hostility. And that comes at this point of justification. Right? Justification. Sorry, I haven't preached in a couple of weeks. So, I'm going to get the whole load today. Justification is a declaration by God that we are in right standing with Him. It's a declaration. We bring no righteousness to the table at all. All we bring is our sin. And we come by faith, understanding that this sin kills, destroys, condemns. We come to God. And His declaration puts us in right Legal, if I could put it like that, legal standing with Him doesn't change us. Justification. It's simply a declaration. You say, well, how can He declare me, I, Bill, who is unrighteous, righteous? How can He do that? And the answer is because of Christ. It's the righteousness of Christ in His life, and it's the sacrifice of Christ through His death that pays the penalty for my sin that then enables God to justly declare me righteous in Christ. It's a once and for all deal. You can't be a wee little bit justified. You either are or you're not. Alright? So that's it. That's justification. Declaration by God. And that's wonderful. But if that's all our salvation was, we now would be relatively miserable. Or we'd be happy that we're forgiven. But you see, since we realize that sin's the problem, and that sin makes us miserable, if we had nothing then from God to enable us to overcome sin and we still lived in it, even if we were forgiven, we would be miserable people. But the wonderful thing is the same God of peace who justifies, sanctifies. Because you see, when we talk about this idea of sanctification, I love the smile because the looks on your face, you're thinking, I should be writing this down. Sanctification It's this being made holy. 
not just forgiven, but being made holy. You see, see, justification changes our legal status concerning God and our sin. We're now pardoned, forgiven, declared righteous. Sanctification changes our relationship with sin in that it no longer, as we mentioned a minute ago, has dominion over us. He breaks the power of canceled sin. So that, part and parcel, of our salvation isn't just being forgiven and declared righteous, but it's also the work of God in us to make us holy. Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith Sorry, Presbyterian stuff. Westminster Confession of Faith, a shorter catechism. I think question 35. I should have written it down. I don't remember the question. I think it's 35. Question 35 says, Sanctification is a work of God's free grace by which our whole person is made new in the image of God. And we are made more and more able to become dead to sin and alive to righteousness. That's it, you see. That's when Paul praise and thus God guarantees our sanctification he's saying that when I say when I justify you when you're justified that isn't the end of it I work by my spirit in you to give you power to enable you to overcome sin I work in you to overcome you sanctification is a work of God's free grace by which our whole person is made new in the image of God. You see, that's it. To be sanctified is this process by which we're conformed to the image of Christ. See? It's this process by which we're conformed to the image of Christ. He at work in us for that purpose. And we're made more and more able to become dead to sin and alive, you see, And alive to righteousness. Now this work, as we can see, the sanctification is complete. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'll be honest with you. uh, There has been a lot of discussion throughout the centuries of what Paul means by these little three pieces, spirit and soul and body. Some have made the case that it must mean that human beings are made up of three parts. We have a spirit, we have a soul, we have a body. And so we're tripartite in that sense. Others said, no, 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 no. Spirit and soul, as you read through the scripture, are often used interchangeably, often used of the same kind of thing. If we're talking about spirit, we're talking about soul, it really doesn't quite matter. That really were two parts. We have an immaterial part that would be spirit-soul kind of part and a, and a material part of our body. So we're not three, we're just two. But then you see, the problem with that whole discussion is that when the Bible speaks of human beings, it doesn't split us up like that. When God saves us, he saves us. He saves the whole person. He just doesn't save your spirit. He just doesn't save your soul. He just doesn't save your body. He saves you. However you want to define you, describe you, he saves you. And when you sin, it isn't that your spirit sins or your soul sins, or your body sins. You sin. I sin. Right? And so when we give our bodies, as he talks about 
in Romans chapter 6 as instruments of unrighteousness. It isn't that our soul or our spirit is just sort of passive in all of this. It's our body, and they're going, I can't believe the body's doing this. Uh, it's us. It's the whole deal. And when we believe, we believe. And so, so, so that's a difficulty, too. And, and then Paul, in the Scripture, uses all kinds of other words to describe us, like heart. Mind, like conscience. Like inner man. Literally, our bowels. Right? So, so what's Paul after here? Well, we're not going to really figure all that out today, other than to say this. That is complete. However, we want to describe the whole person. It's complete sanctification. There isn't anything about us that the Holy Spirit isn't at work in. There isn't anything about us that God will not sanctify, make holy. However, we describe ourselves. It's, it's complete, you see, in all of that. Now, this word in Scripture, to sanctify, is used three different ways. Alright? You with me? Three different ways, three different aspects. It's sort of past, present, and future. That's one way to consider it. There's a sense in which the Bible uses the word sanctify... As if it's already happened. For instance, when Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, he, he writes to them like this. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother, Sisthosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, Corinth, to those sanctified, past tense, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, same word, family, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And so there's a sense in which the Bible can speak to us as if we were sanctified. What does that mean? Well, it means, as I've said previously, that when Jesus died for us, he wasn't just canceling sin. He was breaking its power. Now, we shouldn't just ho-hum this. This is crucial. If we have any hope at all to put away sin, then we need God to put it away, to enable us, to help us, to cancel its dominion, its power. And so when Paul writes to the church in Rome, chapter 6, he puts it like this, For if we have been united with him, that is with Jesus, in a death like his, verse 5, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died once to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, that old great hymn, were you there when they crucified 
my Lord. Whatever else that was intended by that expression for a believer is, the answer is, you better believe it. I really was there. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Past tense. When he died to sin, I died to sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means obviously forgiven. It's been paid for. But there's something else here in Romans 6. Not only was it paid for, the penalty for my sin, but also its power was broken so that I would no longer be enslaved to it. In that sense, I'm sanctified. The power of sin has been broken in my life. Now, there's another sense in which sanctification is is understood and used, and it's a future sense. A day will come when we will, in fact, find ourselves to be completely holy, sanctified, right? Uh, Our bodies will be imperishable. Everything about us will love God, desire to glorify Him, honor Him, live worthy of Him, love others. Everything about us will be conformed to the image of Christ will be renewed in the image of our Creator in righteousness and holiness. A day will come. John writes about it in 1 John and chapter 3. Notice how how he puts it. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Verse 1, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Verse 2, Beloved, we we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. It is, we're not yet completely, perfectly sanctified. If you don't believe that, spend a day with me. You'll see that I'm not, at least. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. That doesn't mean we'll be divine, God-man. It means we'll be like Him in His character. In his righteousness, in holiness, right? Be like him because we shall see him as he is. When we see him, everything will change, you see. So they will come. But what Paul's benedicting and praying and all of that deals with our life now, I suspect, which is what we might call progressive or practical progressive sanctification that's the life that we now live i've been crucified with christ but nevertheless i live yet this life i live i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me this life that i now live old self crucified with him new self me but not yet Perfectly sanctified. And thus, now we live in this time of being made holy, if you will. This sense of progressive sanctification. Now, all of this, little aside, is consistent with being justified by grace alone. Right? The grace that justifies also sanctifies. It's consistent with 
being justified by faith alone. The very faith that brings justification also sanctifies. Why? Well, what is faith in Jesus really? When we say that we believe in Jesus, what are we saying? Well, well, we're certainly saying something about him as Savior, Lord, and all of that. But, But we're also saying something about ourselves and sin. We say we believe in Jesus. We're saying, I get it about sin. I get the fact that this sin is out to kill me, destroy me, cause me to be condemned before God. I realize this sin is the problem. And so what do we do? Well, we go to the Lord in faith. What does that mean? We abandon all our trust in ourselves, how we ever thought about life and ourselves and what's right and wrong and all that. And we've said, oh, I'm wrong completely to be condemned for everything I thought about that. And so I'm going to trust you. And we receive peace with God, reconciliation. We're justified. But that very faith then looks at our sin and says, this is really bad. I don't want to live like this anymore. Ah. That's the faith that sanctifies. That's the faith that goes to the Lord and says, help me. So when Jesus was walking through what we call the Sermon on the Mount, we go back to this all the time. This is the gospel. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who realize their spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are those who mourn. They get it about their sin and they realize it's misery and they're sorry. They mourn. Blessed are the meek. They're humbled before God and before others. And then he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's sanctification. That's the desire to be changed. Justification does nothing to our character. It just says you're forgiven, you're pardoned, you're not guilty. Sanctification changes, transforms. It's the Holy Spirit's work on our character. Now, we realize... That in sanctification, we are really active. We're really active. We are engaged. God engages us in this. You know this passage, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right? And so, is it God or is it me? Yes. God's at work within. And we may even say that that's the primary move, the primary work. It's God's work. He doesn't work. Nothing happens. He works in us. And we work out what he worked in. We're to work this out. Doesn't mean he doesn't use means. He does use means. But he works. We work this out. We are active in our sanctification, you see. In fact, we see it uh, throughout the scripture. Romans 6, again, we see this activity of ours if we're going to be sanctified. And we are. This sanctification. Romans 6, verse 12. After telling us of this definitive sanctification, this break with the power of sin. So then he commands us. He says, therefore, I added the therefore. Verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not 
present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. He says, basically, all right, since it's been broken, here's how I want you to think and do. Stop sinning. (laughs) Stop it. Don't present the members of your body Reflect what's going on inside. Don't present them as instruments of unrighteousness anymore. Don't do that. And you say, that's really hard. He didn't say it was going to be easy. This is the progressive sanctification aspect of it. It's growing in us. It's growing in us. Verses 18 and 19. Puts it like this. Having been set free from sin, have become, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Chapter 8, verse 13, he puts it like this. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 13, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit, depending on God, you put to death the deeds of the body, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, you see. So that's it. Spirits at work within us, and we put to death the deeds of the body. Romans chapter 13, verse 14. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It is to appropriate all that's true of Jesus, his righteousness. Get after it. Get after it. This isn't a matter of passivity for us, of sort of letting go and letting God. Well, there is a sense of letting go of our sin. And trusting that God is at work in us so that we can obey. We can follow after him. Uh, Galatians in chapter 5 is filled as, as uh, Rick's been preaching through Galatians. And these particular passages are coming up upon. He speaks in chapter 4 really of Christ being formed in us. That's this process of sanctification so verse 16 verse uh, chapter 5 verse 16 he says but i say walk by the spirit and you not glad, uh, gratify the desires of the flesh walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit so holy spirit lives in you now know that so so then in chapter uh, 5 verse 25 he says we live by the spirit let's also keep in step with him Where is he stepping? Where is he walking? Where does the Holy Spirit lead us? Well, not to the desires of the flesh, he puts it, but he leads us to love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's where the Holy Spirit leads us. You want to be led by the Spirit? Love. That's where he's going. That's where he is. That's where he's leading us. Love. Be filled with Joy. That's where the Holy Spirit is leading us. So be joyful. 
That's why joyful rejoicing by their commands. Live in peace with each other. Be patient with each other. Be kind to one another. Be good. Be faithful. Be gentle. Exercise self-control. Don't say that word that you were just about to say. Don't do that thing that you were just about to do. Exercise self-control. He says, you want to go with the Spirit? You want to be led by the Spirit? You want to keep in step with the Spirit? Well, this is where the Spirit's going. So you should go there. You should go there too, you see. Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, verse 1, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You want to go with the Spirit? Be humble. Be gentle. Maintain the unity of the spirits and the bond of peace. Verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self. Put this on, created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and true holiness. Uh, Hebrews, for instance, in chapter 12 and, 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 and verse 1 speaks to us about this process of sanctification in our involvement. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let's run the race with endurance. So set all this sin aside, he says. There's, there's no shortcut to this. There's no trick to this. You can't go to a conference and have somebody lay hands on you and leave the conference and now you're perfectly sanctified. I did that once and it lasted. Okay, it didn't last. Like at all. I was upset with somebody before I left the conference. Right? There's no shortcut to this. It isn't a zap. It isn't a zing. It's as we've heard a long obedience in the same direction. So he puts it in verse 14 of chapter 12. The author's author of Hebrews. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He's saying, strive for this. This engages everything about us. Spirit, soul, and body. He's going to sanctify the whole person, however we define that, however we describe that. This, we need to be engaged in this. This isn't legalism. This is faith. This is believing. This is trusting. This is repenting. This is depending. But this is the result of being reconciled to God. He's at work in us. You see, that's the struggle. I've been thinking about us. And I've been thinking this. That we're all good with this idea of forgiveness. Generally speaking. We get it. We understand we're sinners. We need to be forgiven. We understand the work of Christ brings forgiveness. We like that. But you realize we can't just stop there because God doesn't stop there. We get the whole package. What it means to be saved isn't just to be justified and declared righteous. But to be saved means also to be in process of sanctification to lead to perfect sanctification or glorification. It's all one big passage. God doesn't chop it up 
And he says, you want this, you want this, or you want this? He says, no, I'm going to save you. So when I justify you, understand I break the power of sin. Understand I'm at work now sanctifying you. And I think one of the difficulties with us, this may be true especially of our kids as they grow up in our church. They're okay. They understand sin. They understand forgiveness. That's not bad. But can I really trust Him with my life now? Can I really trust that this sanctifying process will make me happy? I really trust that this sanctifying process is really be good. Because you see, I have all these things I want to do and all these desires I have. And I want to go in this particular direction. I want to fulfill this and I want to fulfill that. And I, want, and I know some of these probably aren't, well, maybe that good. But can I really trust God to engage myself utterly and completely in being sanctified? where I live. Can I really trust Him to work in me in such a way? Can I really strive after these things which He says are good and right and turn away from all these other things and know that I really will be satisfied? told this story before, but it's so profound in my, the context of my own life that I'll tell it again. Years ago, I think probably 35 years ago, I was having a discussion into the wee hours of the morning, or at least that's how I remember it, the wee hours of the morning with a neighbor of mine who wasn't a Christian. And, and frankly, I'd explained the gospel every which way. And, and, and to be really honest with you, I thought I had really done a good job. I mean, it was about as clear as it could be. And... Uh, and so I, I looked at this guy, and we were in our mid-twenties at the time, and I, I looked at this guy and I said, it's a gift. It's a gift from God, eternal life. Why won't you accept it? Why won't you believe? Don't you believe that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? He says, well, I, I get the whole sin thing. I understand all of that. But, but here's my problem. And I said, what's your problem? And he says, I realize that if you accept the gift... You belong to the giver. And I went, oh, yes, you're right. You're right. If you accept the gift, then you're his. And what he was saying in the midst of that is, I don't want to be his. He still isn't his. Well, it's easy to look at that guy and go, oh, you missed it. I look at my own life and I go, do I get it? Do I understand that the gift is so profound? Why won't I trust him with everything, every area? Sanctify me. Repent from this. Sanctify me. I won't go there. I won't think that. I won't. Why? Well, do I realize that the giver of a gift is perfectly good? That the giver of the gift is perfectly good. Good. And this sanctification is perfectly good. And it's the only thing that can really satisfy. 
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What do we remember? What are we declaring? We're certainly declaring that he died for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that our legal status could be changed, so that God could be both just and the justifier of all those who believe. Sins forgiven, pardoned, declared not guilty, declared righteous, all of that. But there's something else we mustn't forget, which is when he died, he broke the power of canceled sin so that we would be sanctified. And just as our justification is good, our sanctification is good. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us, as we are in the presence of Jesus. As we've been this whole time, as we, in a sense, always are, but now by His Word, in His presence, and now through the sacrament in His presence. We pray that You would take this bread and this juice and You'd set it apart in such a way that, that we'd know that we're in the presence of Jesus. He's not here physically, and the bread and the juice is just bread and juice. But we know that spiritually we're in His presence. And thus I pray that not only will we be impressed concerning our justification, but that we'd be thrilled with this sanctification, its prospects for today and tomorrow and the next day, and certainly for all eternity. So I pray now that as we come to this table, that we'll rejoice in justification and sanctification, that we'll be assured of our justification and that we will be engaged in our sanctification. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in His sight without hope, except in His sovereign mercy, and all those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as He's offered to us in the Gospel as the Savior of sinners. Indeed, all those then who desire to live worthy of this Gospel, which means receiving forgiveness, which means trusting in and being engaged in holiness. That's true for you. I invite you to come these two sections down the aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and remind yourself this. He died so that I could be sanctified. Please come.